The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive. On the 34th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we find out more about Walks Around Britain's new presenter, Vicky Lee, and talk to writer and environmentalist Kate Rolls about growing up outside and how we can save the planet. and you're very welcome to the 34th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide for the next 30 or so minutes of walking and outdoor chat. Now we've always liked to have a variety of different presenters on the Walks Around Britain TV series. There's me of course and my daughters but there's also Leah Hather, Zoe Dawes and the legend that is Alan Hinks. The theory behind having different presenters is each bring a different voice, a different viewpoint and perspective to the walks. And with a diverse audience watching the series on television, we think it's important that the audience can identify with somebody in the series too. So over the next couple of seasons, we're bringing in some new presenters to the team. And it's my pleasure to have one of the first on the podcast with me now. Hello, Vicky Lee. Vicky, welcome to the podcast and welcome to Walks Around Britain. Hi, thank you for having me. It's interesting to hear that you've got somebody there who's uh, who's helping you on the podcast this morning. <laughs> Yeah, he's probably seen a cat looking out the window. I often close the curtains. So. You'll have to introduce who he is. Um, well, he's a seven-year-old tri-border collie called Hans. He's my first ever border collie, actually. I, I grew up with the one Yorkshire Terrier, and uh, he's so soft and, and fluffy. And he's usually my, um, my well, I was going to say workshop buddy in the day. He's just my best companion in the day because I work from home. And, uh, yeah, we like to take him out for a lots of, I can't say the W word, well, <laughs> go for walks a lot. <laughs> when we go out in our camper van on holiday and always go have dog-friendly holidays. So, yeah, he's part of the family. And he's always in my uh, videos on my YouTube channel as well. So we better first... <laughs> oh, and he's very vocal. <laughs> we better first of all then explain about your YouTube channels and, and where you sort of started doing yes. presenting and videos. Well, I'm originally from Doncaster. We moved here for, for a job. I used to work in, in retail as a manager for years, all over Yorkshire, actually. And I relocated near Coventry. So me and my um, fiancé at the time, we moved into this house and I started getting into um, filming cooking videos for fun in this terrible kitchen. And it was a way to escape from doing the house up on my own. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was learning everything from scratch and I still do that it had it had a nice following but my husband said if you put as much energy into doing up our house as you do <laughs> in your tastefully vicky youtube channel and blog that's what it became in the end then we'd have a house done by now and they were very hurt well i didn't want to hear it because i was enjoying it too much then i started to think i do have a journalism background i like to um try and explain things so well, i thought Maybe I can just do um, do DIY projects where a lot I didn't understand as well. So if I learn and share them as I go along, then other people can learn yeah. for themselves. So I started doing that. And all of a sudden, completely unexpected, 
I was getting so many more comments and encouragement on this tiny DIY YouTube channel than I was on my food channel. I thought maybe I'm onto something here. I'll keep at this because if I try and do a project a week, which needed doing in in the house, I was basically making content out of old rope, (laughs) if you like. And it just... Now I've got almost 50,000 subscribers and I've really, to be honest, I thought I'd get laughed at the whole time of, but people have got to start from somewhere. I don't mind if I if I do something wrong. I can share it from a, a newbie's perspective. And in fact, one of the first projects that I got asked to do and I really didn't want to do it was converting our van into a camper van because I didn't know what I was doing. I had to do hours of research and it was freezing cold outside doing it on the driveway I was filming everything on my my smartphone and it wasn't a very good one either and that's when I started getting all these comments and I thought oh okay (laughs) maybe I should carry on doing this which then led to even more videos as well going around the UK camping lots of camping trips I had been sharing our holiday vlogs anyway on my food channel in two of the camper vans that we used to have Mazda Bongos then we went for this one and the great thing about coming at it from a non-expert perspective is that you bring the viewers along with you yes definitely and someone who doesn't necessarily have loads of tools and just making use out of what you've got I know a lot of people assume that because I'm a carpenter's daughter yes I've called myself the carpenter's daughter which is true some people don't believe that but I didn't at all learn anything off my dad growing up it's only since moving into this place in my 30s where I've realized I've had to learn how to do it if I want to save money and my parents have always been like that anyway they've done stuff for themselves I've seen I've, I've seen them do the, most of their own jobs and then hire electricians and, and stuff in so there's I've probably got that frugalness from from them and, and that can do attitude and my dad um my dad's been running a family well he runs a wood yard it's it's been part of the family business before well before I was born my granddad started it so it's been there but I've only learned things when I've asked more recently and then I didn't realize how inquisitive I was I want to I'm trying I want to learn as much as many things as I can so I can be more self-sufficient. And I suppose also coming from Yorkshire has a good base in that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't get out for note. <laughs> and if you don't have to spend any money, that's even better. Yeah. And another saying that my dad always said is hard-earned, easy spent. <laughs> <laughs> so you started with holidays in the camper van. Tell us more about those. Yeah. So initially when me and my then boyfriend, now husband, um, we'd go camping quite a lot, just in a tent. Um, So we might be going to Nottingham, Lincolnshire. That would probably be most weekends in in the summer. Occasionally we'd go close to wintertime and wake up to frost. I know that's probably a bit nuts. And then we thought, well, my husband wanted this he wanted to get a camper van and oh, it was it was a piece of junk this very first Mazda Bongo years ago and it it had a cracked head gasket we didn't know about but we ended up paying to get it fixed and 
actually thinking about it, I mean, it cost about a thousand pounds to fix, which sounds it was a lot of money to us then, but we had so many great holidays and, and wild camping experience all over. We went to Scotland. We've, we've been towed back from Scotland twice. <laughs> oh, they've, they've been some great memories. So it was great just to go away for the night here, there and everywhere. We'd go to Mantor, Pembrokeshire, Cornwall, everywhere you can probably think of. It's funny when you um, visit another place, but you come from a different angle. You, f- you forget where you've been. And then we, we had another Mazda Bongo after we got rid of that one. And then we thought, let's just get a, a van that we can also use. And so, yeah, we've been having British holidays for maybe about seven years because our dog is seven. They've always been dog friendly ones. And then we'd, we've started in the last two years to go to France and Spain and get a dog passport. But I don't know how valid that will be for much longer. And really, in the last year, we have slowed down the, the camper van trips because you get bored of going to the same places. So with them, we've started having narrowboat holidays and we quite fancy a narrowboat now. And just walking around the canals, you get to visit a place with a different perspective. When me and my husband started going out, wherever we went, we'd do lots of walking and talking. That seems to be our, our thing. And I've, all, I've always thought, well, he's been the map reader and I've always been the one that's just there along for the ride and the scenery, taking it all in, having a picnic. I absolutely love the, the countryside and the coast. And we can just spend hours doing coast walks and take the dog. And if I could put my house on on a big farm with with a coastal view, I'd do it tomorrow. And you you could just keep going for walks. Just absolutely love getting lost. Uh, no, not lost, lost, but you know, lost in thought, just walking everywhere. If you could pick places to go walking, maybe places that you've been before, maybe places that you haven't been yet, where would you like to go walking? I'd like to go to Cornwall a lot more, but try and find yeah. some country parks. One of my favourite places is Pembrokeshire because that's got miles of, of beach walks and it's got forests as well near it. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like I've done so many walks. I couldn't tell you. What, I'd love to do more of Scotland. I've definitely not explored enough there. What kinds of walks do you like the best? You seem to be veering towards coastal walks then. Coast with forests. You know, I don't know what draws me to the coast, but I just find it so peaceful. Maybe the sounds. I think it's cool to see Hans as well, my dog. I think he loves both. He loves all the different smells, the nature scene, squirrel. He's very reactive to <laughs> to wildlife. So, yeah, he is best on the lead, really. But it's great to see him just... He just wants to sniff and explore everything. Vicky, thanks for coming on the podcast. That's all right. Thanks for having me. We're filming the first walks with Vicky very soon, so you'll be able to see her on screen over the next couple of months. If you'd like more information about Vicky and all the presenters of Walks Around Britain, just visit our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk, and go to the About Us section. The Walks Around Britain podcast is brought to you by Travel, the world-leading manufacturer and retailer of vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. 
adding travel products enables you to get out and enjoy walking adventures with friends, family and dogs, so that everybody enjoys the journey. Travel offers the best fit guarantee of any brand when purchasing direct through their website, or your money back. Visit travel.co.uk to see the product range available for the car you drive. For many people, the lockdown the UK went through in mid-2020 to try to restrict the spread of coronavirus offered a chance to reflect on what was important to them and their world. The threats to this planet from big business, the decline and destruction of natural habitats, and the possibility that capitalism could be a challenge to the long-term future of the planet are all topics I've heard and seen people discuss during lockdown. But it wasn't the conversation I had intended to have with the environmentalist and writer Kate Rawls, despite Kate being a former university lecturer in environmental ethics at Lancaster, and now raising awareness and inspiring action on our major environmental challenges. Now, in fact, I actually wanted to tap into Kate's other former role as a lecturer in outdoor studies at the University of Cumbria to talk about getting outside more. Kate, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Tell me, how did you first get into the outdoors? Ha! Huh. Do you know, Andrew, it's a long time since I thought about that. <laughs> um, I think I was kind of born there. <laughs> you know I mean? um, we, we grew up in the countryside, and as far as I can remember, I was always trying to escape into the outdoors. Um, and then when I was a bit older, uh, we, we lived in Cornwall for a while, grew up mostly in Scotland, but had five years in Cornwall. And while I was in Cornwall, I had a pony, and I used to cycle to go and visit my pony who lived in a farmer's field. And so me and the pony would spend quite a lot of time exploring the Cornish moors. I had quite a free-range childhood. Um, and then earlier than that, even, I, I remember playing outside a lot in various gardens in Scotland. So I think I've always been in the outdoors. Sounds like a rather amazing childhood. Yeah, it was a very nomadic childhood. Um, I probably sound a bit privileged talking about the pony in the first sentence, but it wasn't <laughs> quite like that. Um, my dad was a, a doctor, but you don't become a doctor immediately. You spend a lot of time as a junior doctor. And so we often moved. We moved roughly every two years. So I've lived in many different places across Scotland and plus the five years in Penzance and then back to Scotland as he moved up the medical hierarchy and eventually, eventually became a consultant. But that was many, many years later. So, yeah, it, it was a great childhood, but a very nomadic one. Um, I was rarely in any single school for more than a couple of years. And I think that was part of the reason why I did set, spend so much time in the outdoors, often on my own, uh, wandering about and exploring the local areas where I lived. I became very, very fascinated by creatures of all kinds, whether it was wild or tame. I was desperate to have a dog when I was a kid, and I didn't get a dog. Um, so I used to keep slugs and spiders and <laughs> snails. In fact, I must have been a terrible kid looking back on it. I was either trying to escape to make friends with fierce Alsatians or to hang out with local cattle or ponies or had jars full of strange creatures in the house. But you didn't have a dog, you had a pony. Eventually, when we moved Eventually. to Cornwall, um, I, I got the pony and my brother got the dog. So there you go. <laughs> I think I got the, I got the better deal, in the, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a great similarity, isn't there, between dogs and horses and ponies? Yeah, there is. And there's also, you know, that thing about dogs and their owners was definitely true and possibly horses and their owners as well. So my pony was not at all 
posh. He was a very scruff and rather fierce little creature. <laughs> I spent quite a lot of time on the ground having fallen off the pony. And my brother's little dog was a little Jack Russell. My my brother had a kind of a taciturn streak, let's just say, and, and so did the dog. So <laughs> it wasn't perhaps quite the idol that, that I'm painting here. <laughs> so, the, so the moving around must have taken its toll a little bit, but the outdoors became almost like a solace. Yeah, definitely. I didn't feel it as a toll at the time. And in fact, I always felt very grateful in a sense to to be free, to to be constantly discovering new places and and not to get how I perceived it sort of stuck or trapped in one place, but always to be able to move on and find another. Having said that, it must have taken a toll on some level to be constantly saying goodbye to one set of human friends and having to make a new set of human friends. And I think that's partly, not only, but partly why I became so interested in in other animals and other creatures and in spending time in, in relatively wild places. There's definitely a solace in that. I don't think it's just a substitute, though. I think it's an amazing, valuable and wonderful world in its own right. So you're a very passionate person about the outdoors and environmental activism. Do you think that young people today are more connected to nature than they ever have been? I certainly hope so. I think it's definitely true that there are more young people than ever before engaged in environmental activism of one form or another. I mean, the whole youth strike school movement has just been fantastically powerful and really, really energised the climate change movement that many of us have been involved with for decades, <laughs> but, to, but to little effect. And, and mm. now suddenly we've seen this huge awakening across the public to the climate change emergency and how important it is, which is fantastic. And also increasingly to the fact that we have an ecological emergency as well. You know, climate change is desperately important, but it's not the only environmental challenge we face. We're also looking at catastrophic loss of biodiversity of other species and at habitat degradation. And again, I think young people are increasingly aware of this and very, very concerned about it. I mean, it's their future that's at stake, right? We're here now and we borrow this world from yeah. the future. Yeah. And we ought to be passing it on to the future better than what we found it. Yeah, definitely. And it and it's not just a landscape for humans either. I mean, I think it's really important to think about the landscape as an ecological community with millions of other beings living there. And we're part of that community and we live in that community on pretty much the same terms as them. And they're entitled to be here as well. We're finding around the world that biodiversity is in decline in many places what can we do locally as individuals, as, as families, at a local level to support biodiversity? I think the, number one is to know why it matters, um, to, to know and to care about biodiversity and to realise that nature's not just a luxury, it's not just a nice place to go, it's our life support system. You know, we literally cannot survive without other species Biodiversity gives us ecosystems and ecosystems give us so-called ecosystem services. I hate that language, but the ecosystem <laughs> services are things like soil fertility and pollinators and flood defense mechanisms and, you know, things that we literally our lives depend on. So the first thing is to really know and to really get that this matters. And then there's all sorts of stuff that we can all be thinking about, like where does our food come from and how is it grown? 
And is it grown in a biodiversity-friendly way as far as possible? If there's anything we can do to, to put pressure on the food system to give us more biodiversity-friendly forms of agriculture, that's really important. And as consumers, as well as citizens, of course, we have the possibility to do that at the checkout every time we make a decision. Where has our garden furniture come from? How much meat are we eating has a big impact in terms of the production of soya to feed to cattle, much of which is grown in the Amazon, etc., etc. So it's about uncovering some of those links between what we buy as consumers and how that's impacting biodiversity around the world and then trying to impact on those links by putting pressure on them and withdrawing our support for the ones that we feel are problematic. On a positive side, of course, there's a lot we can do for biodiversity locally in our own gardens. There's a shed load of information about plants that you can get um, often for free from the Wildlife Trust to help with pollinators and other insects. There's all sorts of things we can plant. There are bird boxes we can make providing habitats for creatures close to home. And then widening out a bit, uh, we've been working in Cumbria to try to persuade our local councils to stop mowing verges mm. in May, just at the point at which lots of wildflowers are trying to flower and set their seeds. So, that, so there's lots and lots of things one can do from a local to a national to an international level to help campaign and protect for biodiversity, both by cutting down our negative impacts, but also positively enhancing the world that we live in. It's shocking when you start to think about these things. In my lifetime, we have moved from having seasons for food mm. to fruit and vegetables, which are available all year round. Yeah. And we're told that this is what the consumers want. So supermarkets have brought this in. And yet I didn't really hear anybody saying that that's what we wanted. It's what supermarkets were able to give us. So it's about which came first, isn't it? The power that some of these industries have over our ecosystems are actually, in, in some cases, quite hidden. Yes, and I think it's one of the most dangerous myths of our era, actually, that we, the consumer... And again, that's not language I really like. We're not just consumers, we're also citizens. But we as the consumer drives what the market provides. And that's completely bonkers when you actually look at the amount of money that is invested in advertising. Mm. So, you know, industries spend literally billions and they employ the top social psychologists to understand how to manipulate and persuade us into buying these products, half of which you've never even heard of before the, you know, the advertising thing comes on our screens. So it's very much the other way around. We're persuaded that we, that we need and want all of this stuff. And so we go off and buy it. It's not that we sit here and hatch up this idea that we have to have this particular kind of running shoe or, you know, this particular kind of new phone that does X, Y and Z things that we've never been able to do before. And also, I think what we're finding now is that capitalism as a as a system is inherently flawed possibly as much as any other kind of monetary system on the basis that it's designed and it needs growth of which growth is finite yeah and i think you know that's that became so clear to me on my recent long bike ride in south america where I encountered, I mean, I encountered amazing things and I also encountered some pretty shocking things, some of which were almost like caricatures of, of capitalism. So I came upon a lead mine that had been built right in the centre of a town and most of the young people in that town had lead in their bloodstream and there is no um, safe level of lead in the young person's blood. 
So, you know, that was just shocking. And then the, this town was at 14,000 feet and the tailings, highly toxic tailings from the lead mine were going straight into the water supply. And this was all, this was all done in order to earn revenue uh, for Peru. It was, it was in Peru, but it was a Canadian country operating in, in co- company, sorry, operating in Peru. And the whole thing was about economic growth and profit from which most people are not actually benefiting that were suffering the costs of this mine. It was driving vast environmental impacts and it was being fed straight into a system that absolutely has to keep growing, as, as you just said. Capitalism is founded on the growth imperative. It has to keep growing or it will collapse. And that growth requires constant resource extraction and therefore causes constant environmental damage at both ends of the system. There's damage caused when you take the resources out of the earth. Just think about what's going on in the Amazon, for example. And there's damage caused at the end of the system when the waste is put back into the earth, some of which, of course, it comes in the form of carbon dioxide and is causing global warming. But there are many other kinds of pollutants that our capitalist system is is generating at a level that the planet can no longer cope with. It, It simply cannot recycle the amount of waste that we're pumping into it. So absolutely, capitalism is a hugely problematic system. And I really don't think we're going to tackle climate change or the biodiversity crisis in the current um, economic model. Yeah, so we are lo- we are looking at radical change and more and more people are calling for that radical change now. Would you say that lockdown has helped us get a fix on what should be a lot more important to us? I mean, we haven't been able to race out to the local Primark mm. and buy the latest fast fashion mm. and we've all managed to survive. And yet, as soon as the shops open again, queues are there racing for those fast fashions. Yes, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? There was such a lot of talk during lockdown about people reconnecting with nature, about being reminded of the value of nature, feeling sceptical about shopping. Um, I mean, it's almost... I, I used to smoke. I was I was a daft teenager, and, <laughs> and one of the daft things I did was smoke cigarettes. And it's really hard to quit if you've ever tried smoking cigarettes. It, it is an addiction. But once you've quit, once you've put that distance between yourself and the cigarette, you can see quite how crazy it is. And I sometimes feel that consumerism is a bit like that. Like we all get sucked into it, don't we? And I do the same as anybody else. Okay, it's fleeces and walking boots, or bits for my bicycle but I still get sucked into it but if you can't buy the stuff and you put some physical distance between yourself and the and your shopping habits whatever they are then then there really is a kind of a release and you sort of think oh here I am I haven't been shopping for weeks and I really haven't missed it so I think a lot of that stuff really did go on during lockdown of course the big question is what happens now isn't it and Hmm. how many of us are reverting to our old habits and how many of us are hanging on to some of those things that we learned during lockdown about the importance of community about the importance of nature and about how valuable it is just to be able to breathe clean air and hear birdsong One of the good habits that came out of lockdown was more people getting out to walk and to cycle for their hour of exercise a day. Yes, but but you know, Andrew, I mean, I felt so aware of that during the lockdown period. I mean, I live in South Cumbria in a very beautiful part of the world in a very small town. And I'm lucky enough to be able to walk out of my door and in half an hour be on the top of a little hill called the Hode. 
And the Hode has a monument uh, to Sir John Barrow. So it's shaped like a lighthouse because he invented lighthouses. (laughs) (laughs) And from the Hode monument, you can see south across the estuary to the sea. So you you walk up there and you can look out. You can see whether the tide is coming in or out and what state the tide's in and what the weather's like in that direction. And you look north and you can see all of the central Lake District fells. So uh, Connie Old Man, um, Scarfell, Scarfell Pike, Blencathra, around to High Street and so on. So it's really a fabulous little view right out of my door. And I did that every day during lockdown. But so many people don't live in that kind of environment, do they? So yeah. many of us, um, globally as well as nationally, more than 50% of the world's human population now live in cities. And for those people who endured lockdown in you know, in flats in cities, I can't imagine how tough that must have been. So in some ways, I think in many ways, lockdown emphasized the inequality that we're seeing in the country. And those inequalities extend to access to nature as they do in many other directions. What I took away was privileged people saying how they were coping with lockdown Mm. and not really thinking about the amount of people who, there are many cities in the country that have green spaces but there's a lot that don't got a friend who lives in the center of manchester manchester actually is a very difficult place to access green spaces yeah and if you're in those sorts of situations it can't have been a nice time to have been stuck inside no it must have been just unbelievably tough i think and now of course we're seeing this very strange phenomenon in the lake district and many other parts of the world too of course where you're getting a new, I don't know what the word is, a new demographic, a new, a, a new, new groups of people who mm. possibly haven't been accessing the countryside, uh, who would normally be doing other things in the summer, and those options aren't open to those people, so they're coming to places like the Lake District, and we've had all sorts of stories about the rubbish and the vandalism and so on, but I think there's another narrative going on as well, isn't there? I mean. These are people that we should be welcoming into nature and saying, hurrah, new people accessing nature. (laughs) Attenborough said, didn't he, that no one will protect what they don't care about. Exactly. And no one will care about what they've never experienced. So I think we should be welcoming these people and just, you know, standing alongside them and saying, you know, hey, what do you know about this place? And, And also increasing the facilities so that there are toilets and there are rubbish bins and there are picnic tables and places where people can have barbecues and so on so that people don't need to cut down trees. So so while I agree that the, the rubbish and the vandalism is obviously hideous, I also think that we need to be working with different sectors of society and engaging people actively and positively with nature because, as Attenborough says, you know, how are we going to get our entire population realizing that nature is vital if we just criticize their behavior when they come into it and and sort of effectively exclude them from it. The interesting thing is that we have signposted great areas for people to go Mm. by putting them and calling them national parks, Mm. whereas just a little bit west, north, south, east, there are equally good areas which possibly don't have those designations that could do with a little more visitors. Yes, absolutely. Um, But again, even in the national parks, I think there isn't always the information about how do you access these places and, you know, where are the good spots that you can camp without doing damage or have a barbecue without doing damage. Um, People want different ways of engaging with nature and, and it isn't always about wildflower spotting, much as we might like it to be. 
So I think we have to work with that and, and improve the facilities for people so that we can engage people and, and get into a really important discussion about how humans relate with nature and how much we need it and how we can protect it. Do you feel positive about the future? Yeah, I do. I was I was thinking today um, about one of the things I think we need is Again, going back to the national parks and so on, people often come here and they say how beautiful it is. And I think we really need new narratives about what it is that we're looking at and experiencing when we're walking in nature or cycling in nature. Yes, it's very beautiful, but we need to get beyond the narrative of beauty, I think. From a biodiversity perspective, a lot of the Lake District, for example, is is quite devastated. And um, we need to be talking about, well, what is this place like from a biodiversity point of view? What is it like from the point of view of diversity of plants and animals and wild ecosystems? And so we sort of start to change the conversation to talk about biodiversity, to, to talk about these landscapes as living communities of many species, not just human species. Um, I really like the idea as a practice I developed on my bike ride of asking who else lives here when I was cycling along in this part of the world I knew nothing about. And by who else lived here, I meant the other than humans as well as the humans. And I've started doing it while I've been wandering around in the Lake District during lockdown. And it really changes your perspective. It really makes you think about the animals and the plants and the fact that they live here too and we share it with them. So I think that side of things is really important. They're as entitled to be here too. And also this whole narrative of nature as not being a luxury, but our life support system. So to go back to your question, yes, I am optimistic because I do think those narratives are starting to change. The old, you know, nature's a great place for picnics or a place to be conquered or a backdrop for our social activity. All of those narratives, I think, are starting to shift. And we are starting to see more real engagement um, with landscapes and ecologies and other species and really realising the value of this and our interdependence and absolute connection and need for it. How can we find out more about what you do? Well, I have a website called Outdoor Philosophy. And its address is, surprisingly enough, outdoorphilosophy.co.uk. And I'm currently working on a book called The Life Cycle, which is about cycling from one end of South America to the other, following the spine of the Andes on a bamboo bike that I built myself for the job. And the aim was to explore biodiversity loss as, a, as an issue that's every bit as important as climate change, but doesn't quite get the press. So in about 35 years, that book will be available. <laughs> yes, I know that That's feeling. <laughs> but there's more information about that journey and my previous bike ride, which was called The Carbon Cycle, which, guess what, was focused on climate change. Um, and there is also a book called The Carbon Cycle. Kate, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You're most welcome. Thank you for the invite. That's it for another podcast. Don't forget there's walking inspiration 24-7 on our Netflix for Walking subscription website, Walks Around Britain Plus. Visit our website for a seven-day free trial. And if you'd like to suggest a topic or would like to comment on anything, then please do so by sending us an email, podcast at walksaroundbritain.co.uk. And don't forget you can follow us on social media. You'll find us on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, Pinterest and YouTube. Until next time, thanks for listening and happy walking.
The Walks Around Britain podcast is sponsored by Travel, the world leader for vehicle-specific dog guards, boot dividers, boot liners, rubber mats and more. Visit travel.co.uk to check out the product range for the car you drive.